coverage now continues with the rad Laura Coates and the totally awesome Allison Camerata. Hey, Laura. Hey, Allison. Hey, Jay. Um, hello. I think the 80s I like, called. Yeah, the, the 80s. Yeah, where's that, where's that, that, that was the theme. That was the theme. 80s theme. I like that a lot. Thank you, Dashing Jake. Thank you Dashing very much. Jake. Thanks, guys. Okay, see you. Hello, everyone. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Allison Camerata. And I'm Laura Coates, and we're now just, can you believe it, we're 20 days away from the all-important midterm elections. And with key races around the nation tightening up, especially those that will decide who controls the Senate. Now, there's this question. Look, while he's not on the ballot, how much of a factor is the former president, Donald Trump, in how Americans will actually vote? So listen, there are significant developments in Donald Trump's legal troubles today. A lot is percolating right now. Here are just some of the headlines in the course of just a few hours. This is from CNN Politics, exclusive. Trump considers allowing federal investigators to search Mar-a-Lago again. And then also a federal judge says that Trump signed legal documents that he knew included false voter fraud numbers. Also, you've got Trump appearing for a deposition in the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit. And then in 2021, there is now video where Trump apparently is asking, quote, is this a good Jewish character right here? I mean, Allison, you think about all the different things that are focusing on this former president. It's almost impossible to not think about him around this time. But the question really is going to be how people perceive all of this. Is it sort of coincidental that's all accumulating right now? Or is it strategic in some way? Or is it just all coming to a head because yeah. there have been so many different legal threads that have been out there for so many months? I mean, the E. Jean Carroll one, she was launched in 2019 yep. and he had delayed and delayed. And now finally, um, it's coming. The judge said no more delay tactics. Even with the Mar-a-Lago issue, I mean, it's not as if it just popped up. When we heard about the actual search warrant being executed, it was like 18 months in the making at that point in time. And so I'm curious to see how people think about that and how they view it, because the DOJ, they're kind of hands off from the Labor Day weekend on. But a lot to talk about today with our political commentators, Maria Cardona, David Urban, and David Swirlick. Got two Davids for the price of one. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll figure that Ooh. out. We can handle that. We'll both answer. We'll both yeah. answer. <laughs> You're both very pretty. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so for joining much. the show. <laughs> uh, okay, so here's my, here's my first question. So... As we said, a lot percolating. So between, let's just, let's try to narrow it down right now. The E. Jean Carroll deposition happened today. We don't exactly know. We, in fact, we don't know at all what Donald Trump said. We don't even know if he pleaded the fifth. We have no idea what happened in there. And then there's this federal judge who basically says that Donald Trump made false statements about he knew that there wasn't the amount of fraud. And he said it in court. That sounds serious, David. So do we know of all of these different things that are percolating, which have the most legal jeopardy? First of all, if we're sticking with the 80s thing, we wouldn't be called Studley. That's right. That is right. um, In terms of of, uh, this judge's uh, opinion uh, coming forth today, here's the thing, Allison. There's a difference between saying something on the campaign trail, saying something in the White House briefing room, and saying something to a court, to a judge, in a legal filing. And this judge is basically saying, look, whatever else you said or are saying before in front of the cameras, when you talk to the court, you must be truthful. Now, whether or not it's found that the president was speaking knowingly, falsely, or he was just touting his normal election denialism remains to be seen and remains to be seen if this can be proven in court. But that is what is at stake here. There's a different standard between court documents and just, hey, I'm on television talking. I mean, you get the court of the law, right, where you have this duty of candor, as they call it. 
Then you've got the court of public opinion. Mm-hmm. Then maybe you have the court of the electorate. <laughs> and you're, you're laughing because these all intersect all at once all of a sudden. <laughs> and you do see that cumulative aspect. And you know, part of the allegation is, look, you knew when you signed these documents that there wasn't the widespread fraud, that it wasn't a problem. All that lying to the camera, totally different. But in the, in the views of the voters, I wonder how you two come out on this. I mean, is this something that's really going to persuade or have any impact? Well, well I'm, I'm sure Marie and I will completely agree <laughs> completely. on everything, right? <laughs> Listen, I, here's what I have to say about the, all this Trump stuff, right? It is the Democrats' biggest dream to keep talking about Donald Trump and not about the economy, not about inflation, not about crime, not about any issues, right? If we throw enough Donald Trump up in the air, maybe voters won't notice we're doing a bad job and they won't kick us out, right? That's what I think is <laughs> going on right now. And, and if it weren't true, right, you'd see more people saying, we don't want to talk about Trump. Let's talk about the job that we're doing for the American people. Let's talk about the issues. Let's focus on those things. If you had something to talk about, that's what you'd talk about. If you don't, it's like you're a lawyer. If you don't have the facts, you pound the table, right? So they're pounding the table here is what they're doing. So here are two places where my dear friend David is wrong. <laughs> number one, Only two, number one, for now, number one, he says they're throwing Trump into the mix. We're not doing anything. This is the judge. This is the gazillion number of investigations that are going on around Trump's illegality. That is not of our doing. That is of Trump's doing. So that's number one. The second thing is, if you go out on the campaign trail and you look at what the Democratic candidates are talking about, they are not talking about Trump. They are talking about these issues. But what I do think all of this does, and frankly, I think it is baked into both sides of whether you're a Trump supporter, none of this is going to matter. But where I do think it matters is there were several polls in the last month that said threats to democracy were a priority issue for these voters. So the more that Trump is in the headlines, the more that we see he's being deposed, the more that we see a judge talking about how he knew this was fraud. We all know he knew it was fraud. But the fact that a judge says it is going to bring to mind and have top of mind for all of these voters how they kicked him out in 2020 and they don't want that kind of chaos. And so many of the candidates that are running now are Trump acolytes, are election deniers, and they will get the same thing if they are voted in office. The thing is about that, I want to hear your comment, but the thing about it is it's not the first time that the American electorate has heard a judge say there's no there there, there's no beef, where is it, and all these things as relates to election deniers. And there have been the recent poll, I think the New York Times maybe had a poll that came out just today or yesterday about the idea of, look, it might be a, um, a known quantity that people believe our democracy is in peril, mm-hmm. but do they prioritize it over the election, I mean, the, the economy? Do they prioritize it over, say, no. abortion? Do no. they? The study I'm most familiar with is from Pew from August on the midterms, and they hit, I actually wrote it down. The issues that are at the top are things like economy, guns, crime, health care, voting, education. Um, democracy is in the mix. Voting rights is in the mix. Mm-hmm. Abortion is in the mix. But they're not at the top of that list. And, and that's from August. Try, you know, all, all the recent stuff, right, shows it's the economy. It's kitchen table issues, right? Inflation. Crime. Yeah. The, the things that, that, people, that, that, that the things makes, people, yeah. Sure, it makes sense. Except that I do have a voter panel coming up in the next mm-hmm. block that I look forward to you guys right. seeing. Mm-hmm. And they all mention democracy. Maybe Thank it's you. not as important as the kitchen table. Thank you, them, Allison. But they right. all feel because, it and they all bring it up. Yeah. Yes. And, 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 and do you know why? Because voters are actually smart. When people say voters only care about inflation, they only care about the economy, you're dismissing the intelligence of the voting population in this country. We are able to hold more than one issue in our heads. 
and we are able to go into the voting booth and prioritize. It doesn't mean that you're dismissing every single other issue because you only care about the economy. But you are going to think about this person that I'm voting for. What is this going to mean for the future of our democracy? And that means the world is specifically in these swing districts, in these in the Senate seats, because people understand how important Secretary that is. Secretary of State. Secretary yeah, of that's State. Why, that's exactly. why your panel is exactly so right. Allison, on this point, because having the thumb or the pulse, really, of what the nation thinks yes. about. But interestingly enough, David, I mean, it is true that it can be um, that Carville said, it's the economy, stupid. The same token, can anything really get done unless democracy is mm. really no. prioritized? And, and, and listen, I'm not saying not... If, if there, I've seen poll after poll, right, that Americans on both sides of the aisle are fearful of where we are as a nation, right? You have Stacey Abrams in Georgia saying... It's basically the, the flip side of what a lot of Republicans are saying. We don't trust our elections anymore. We don't trust the polls. We don't trust these things. If, if we break down as a country and don't trust elections to be truthful mm-hmm. and faithful, then, then democracy is in trouble. That's right. And, and that's what everybody should be concerned about, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. You're right. And, and it shows up on both. It shows up amongst Republicans as, as well as, you know, Democrats on the left and the right. So we're, they have yeah, a different but there's only one party that, right. that focuses yeah. on election denialism. You do have to put a lot of the yeah. honest on Hold the floor. Hold on, let me hear right. Wait, let yeah. me hear yeah. Dave. Yeah. I want to hear all sure. of you. Yeah. David, what was your point? No, I was just going to say, I was going to say, I think, I think your point is fair, but I think you have to put the lion's share of that onus on former President Trump exactly. for stoking so much distrust in the 2020 results. Right. It's one thing to question them. It's one thing to pursue your yep. legal case. It's another thing two years later to say this whole thing was... Well, listen, a- ask me if I thought Donald Trump won or lost in 2020. Okay, do you, you, know, you think Donald Trump won or lost in 2020? Yeah, he lost. But my point is, right... Like if, if you, most people, I think, deal in reality. There are a subsection of people who don't. Oh, a big subsection. I don't deny it. But listen, there is. I mean, look at look at your, you know our friend Stacey Abrams in Georgia. She alleges a lot of a lot of voter but fraud. She conceded her race, David. She did concede her race, but she throws up smoke and doesn't say it wasn't fair. Right? I mean. You can't really compare that to a former president who instigated a coup that almost brought down is our Stacey democracy. Stacey Abrams making people in Georgia feel better about their election or less about what their election? What Stacey Abrams, Abrams is doing is she is making not just her followers, but Georgia voters understand the importance of having their votes heard sure. and not of sure having their vote counted. I'm not sure that's yeah, what she's saying. A- absolutely. That's, I think she I said there are people disenfranchised. Look, there people were more, more are people disenfranchised, More people David. voted in the last election in Georgia. When you have rules that keep people from voting, that's called okay. disenfranchisement. Listen, more people voted. I'm just talking. I'm dealing in facts here. More people voted As in the last election. Okay, well, let me yes. finish. Let me finish. Go ahead. More people voted in the last election in Georgia yes. than ever in the history of Georgia. You're right. So, so, That's exactly so right. So Stacey Abrams, but, put, show the proof. No, no. That doesn't, just because more people voted, David. That doesn't that, mean they're disenfranchised. No, no, no. That, no, it doesn't mean that they're not well, disenfranchised. You know what it means? No. It means that... For example, me as a Latino voter, if I believe that I'm going to go to the polls and they're going to ask me for my ID and I don't have an ID, I'm going to make as sure as hell that I have my ID. That means that people are trying harder than ever to prove to the to the powers that be that it is not that easy to take away their vote. 
That's what that. Uh, so means. I'm not. I still don't understand your point. But if more people Let show me up to vote, it again. they're trying to if participate. There are rules that are being put in place to make it harder for a How's section. Harder? How's it harder? For to a vote? section of voters to vote, and they know that. That means those Maria, voters are going to try everything they can. Excuse me, wait. Excuse me, you guys. Everyone to ensure that they don't. Everyone's watching the show. Wants to hear from each of your opinions. So let's just make sure that I can hear you, David. I'm going to say this. Is that clearer? No. Well, I understand the point you're trying to make. Okay. You're trying to say like you shouldn't have an ID to vote is what you're saying no what i'm I'm, I'm missing your point what i'm saying is is that the harder that legislators let's talk about georgia because there's no question that brian kemp has tried to make it as hard as possible to for people to vote by doing what by by requiring an id by requiring so you shouldn't have an id to vote no no no, hang on by making less places available to go Mm -hmm. vote and by the way here in washington dc you don't need an ID. Has there well, been massive fraud or fraud? No. So well, here's the thing. How, how do you know that? But, but hang on. Yeah. Be, because yeah. these have been the, the safest elections that right. we had in 2020. Uh, we, well, we, 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 have Allison, Allison, we have a fundamental disagreement. Allison, they began by saying my good friend wanted that. Listen, we can agree to disagree. We can agree to disagree. Absolutely. I think you need an ID to vote. Lastly, do you have a point here? The only thing I want to add at this point is this. If you have a situation, you can talk about Georgia, you can talk about Governor, excuse me, uh, leader Abrams, if you have a situation like we do now, where mm-hmm. a big chunk of one party, the Republican Party, mm-hmm. would just hold, hold on, listen, David, listen. No, look, David, I love you like a place this cousin, but I, <laughs> let me just get this one point out. If, if you have a big chunk of one party in a two-party system that is unwilling to accept that it can lose a national election. Mm-hmm then a two-party system ceases to... So I just disagree with you on the big chunk. That's my point, right? There is a chunk of the Republican Party. I can't measure it. I can't tell you. I would, I would disagree with the, the big chunk It's part. a majority it's, right now. It's, it's a majority. I, I, I don't necessarily know it's a majority of the Republican Party. Majority who can pull... I think we can pull polls on Show me the numbers. All right, I will. I will. I'll take that challenge. Okay. All right, so how are voters in battleground states feeling about the midterms? Up next, we sit down with a group of voters to find out what issues will be driving them to the polls. Our Pulse of the People, up next. We're less than three weeks away from the critical midterm elections, and we wanted to check in with voters in battleground states to see what's on the top of their minds. So we assembled a group of Republicans and Democrats from Michigan, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Nevada. As you'll see, these voters do not fall within neat party lines. In fact, some plan to vote for the opposing candidate because they think their own party's candidate is too extreme. Here now, our Pulse of the People. In a couple of sentences, if you could tell me what you think the top issue in the country is right now. Well, for me, one of the top issues is school security. I have two daughters who are in school right now, and that is a big focus of mine. Uh, being a former captain in the United States Army, it's very prevalent for me to make sure that my daughters are safe because that's what I fought for. As a college student in Philadelphia, in an area where COVID crime has risen substantially, I'm especially concerned about being able to feel safe on campus, being able to go from class to class. What kinds of crimes are you seeing more of? So a lot more robberies with weapons on campus. We get the text alerts every single time it occurs and across the city of Philadelphia. We're having a lot of people that are desperate in the economy. And I see that when a lot of this petty crime is coming out, people are breaking into stores, they're assaulting people. 
Um, I open carry, I conceal carry in a grocery store, not because I hate people. It's because I love my children and I want to protect myself and my kids. Show of hands, how many of you will on some level be voting on crime or feel that crime is a big issue in your life? Okay, so three of you um, feel that crime is a big issue and you all happen to be the three Republicans on our panel. And so my question for the three Democrats who didn't raise their hand for crime being one of their top issues, why not? So living in Nevada, uh, I was in a role that I was leading part of the crisis response for the October 1st massacre that happened in Las Vegas, which you know is still the largest casualty mass shooting that we've had in the country. Um, I'm also a Democrat. I'm also a gun owner. Uh, so there's there's aspects to, you know, again, this definition of crime is a much bigger picture. You know, th- there's a lot of sub topics and issues that fall under crime, I think, that, that we look at. One of the issues of why there's increased crime is we have such an incredible access to weaponry. A few years ago, I was involved um, with a shooting at a big box retailer and we could hear gunshots. We could hear people moaning. We had no idea if one of our fellow co-workers was down. And once we were cleared by police, we actually had to um, walk through the victim's um, blood on the floor. I mean, it was just a traumatic experience. It's something that is permeating at every grocery store, movie theater, so many private and public aspects of our life are affected by violence. And I think that's really the issue is what's going on with our society and how can we have a real conversation about being safe? That's what I was going to say, Amy. We're on the same page with that. Until we have people who are willing to come to the table and have credible solutions on this issue, I don't think we'll go very far. Let's talk about the economy. Show of hands, how many of you think that the economy is what most people will be voting on in the midterms? Two of you. Okay. So, Lydia, give me your thoughts. Well, I I see it every day. I look at my bank account. I see what's in my wallet, and it affects me every single day. Uh, When I'm having to make decisions on, you know, if I'm going to buy milk or eggs, and seeing the gas prices here in Nevada are skyrocketing, and there's no reason. We're having the Biden administration and a Federal Reserve that are just pumping money into the into the system. And it's just causing inflation on college campuses everywhere. But particularly my own, you can see the anxiety brewing over economic decisions that students have to make every day, buying textbooks, paying for college rent and off campus apartments, et cetera. If we're actually talking about the high cost of education, the fact that wages are stagnant compared to where they were decades ago, the fact that we're having difficulty with healthcare expenses and high deductibles and can't afford medications, these are the issues that Democratic candidates are talking about. Let's talk about abortion. How many of you, show of hands, think that abortion will be a top issue during these midterms? Okay, so four of you. I I will tell you, as a male, (laughs) I do not believe uh, it is my place, or nor should it be any male's place, to uh, tell a female what she can and cannot do with her body. I have friends who have been raped. I have friends who have been abused. And I think what frustrates me even more is we sit and we listen to Supreme Court nominees who go through the confirmation process who you know, say things such as Roe versus Wade Wade has been codified. Well, Greg, you need to be the spokesperson for women's rights because you're exactly (laughs) right. You know, a woman should have the right to do as she will with her own body, just like men do. And you don't see a group of women trying to create laws that uh, would prevent men 
from getting vasectomies or doing whatever it is they choose to do with their bodies. Abortion just simply isn't a, a hot topic here in Nevada. It's not on the ballot. Um, right here in Nevada, you can have an abortion up to 24 weeks. So it, it really doesn't, it's a really huge ta democratic talking point. Abortions are being used as uh, birth control. That's not okay. Do we even have the right to presume why a woman may need an abortion? Maybe it's rape or incest. Maybe it's actually that she's developed cancer. Um, I was very late along in a pregnancy with my young daughter and found that I had abnormal cells. And thank God I was able to make it through that pregnancy and that procedure was able to take place after I was able to successfully deliver. It's really a private matter and a medical decision that should only be happening with a doctor and the federal government or a politician is the last person on earth I would ever want in that room with me making that decision. Chloe, I mean, as a Gen Z college student, I'm interested in your position on this. So the abortion component is why I am not voting for Mastriano because he has made it his number one issue. And Chloe, just to be clear, you are in Pennsylvania. You consider yourself a Republican, but you're not going to vote for the Republican candidate, Mastriano, for governor. No. And frankly, it's really discouraging that he's made ending and restricting abortion his number one issue. The way that he describes it seems as if it is a siege on women. I would like to think that that's not the national dialogue, but Mastriano's rhetoric and the way that he's approaching it is really problematic for Republicans and Democrats alike. And I would like to see more moderate Republicans who have solutions that do respect a woman's bodily autonomy, but also the life of the fetus. And Mastriano just isn't that. Brock Alger from Georgia. What do you think the Herschel Walker abortion claims, what do you think that's doing to the race and does that matter to you? Herschel Walker. I'm going to sigh on that one for a second. I, uh, I don't agree with any, pretty much anything that he says. He is um, a man who has shown extensively that he has done some extraordinary ruthless things to his family members and to uh, especially like his ex-wife and, you know, choking her um, until she's passed until she passed out. I mean, he's just he's a violent man. So though you're a Republican, you would vote for uh, Raphael Warnock, his opponent, who's a Democrat? It, probably so. I'm just so overwhelmed by what he has done that it just really bothers me that uh, he has the nerve and audacity to even be on his ballot. I said it. They're always so interesting. I learn so much every time, Laura, from talking to these voters. Yeah. They give me an entirely different perspective. And it was interesting for me to hear. So the three Republicans think that crime is the number one issue. Mm -hmm. The three Democrats, and I guess I left this on the cutting room floor for tomorrow. You'll have to tune in. Mm -hmm. Think that it's democracy, that that was the number one thing that they said. But we, we'll talk about that in part two. So it's just a totally different perspective. What I found fascinating was the idea you, you keep hearing all these and reading all these op-eds around and different print media and beyond and conversation, social media everywhere about this ticket splitting and the idea of people saying, look, I'm, I'm not just going to vote for whoever is in my party. I want to vote for the issues. And that is a bit of a change. We're so used to and accustomed to a red state, a blue state, and purple is the shock. But you get the Im image here in these conversations you're having that purple as the theory of, I'm going to vote for the issues I believe in and those who are in line with that, okay. The fact that's a bit of a foreign concept to us these days 
is fascinating. And also, people do not fit in narrow boxes. No. You, maybe, the pigeonhole you know, is gone. Yeah, you, you can't do that. I mean, I think that sometimes candidates think that. They do not. Um, okay, yeah. so we'll talk more about this. We just heard from the voters' take on crime, the economy, abortion. How does all of that translate to who comes out on top of the midterms? That's next. As you just heard, crime, the economy, abortion, and democracy, as you'll hear tomorrow, the top issues that voters in battleground states tell us they're focusing on for the midterms. We're back now with Maria Cardona, David Urban, and David Swerdlick. So it was fascinating for me to sit down with this group of Mm -hmm. battleground voters. Um, One of the things that was fascinating was the three Democrats said that democracy and human rights were what they were voting on. The three Republicans said crime right away. And then it turns out in the conversation that two of the Democrats were in mass shootings. Yeah. They were yeah. they were somehow involved in mass shootings. Yeah. And so they're traumatized from that. But yet they didn't say crime as yeah. their number one because basically they think crime is so complicated. Is it about access to weapons? Right. Is it about uh, poverty and people feeling desperate? So they didn't, they just labeled it differently. But I, I loved that conversation that you had because I think it also shows another depth to the issue of crime that I don't think is being measured by all of these polls and the assumption that when people say crime, they mean the kind of crime that Republicans are pushing that is bad for Democrats. I've talked to so many Democrats who said, you know what? Yes, the issue of crime is top of of top of mind for me because there are so many guns on the street and Republicans want to do nothing to try to curtail the number of guns on the street. And that goes to this issue of gun safety. Exactly. And that, if if that's how you call crime, Mm -hmm. that issue in that way, that's going to turn for Democrats. That's why it's really, you know, you almost call it the polar coaster, right? Because you can almost find a way of asking a question that leads the horse to water and makes them drink. Yes. And why that was illuminating is because you really had to unpack that. And that's why mm-hmm. you think, remember that old book, Women Are From, Mar- Women are from Venus, Men Are From yeah. Mars, like different <laughs> planets? You almost get the impression sometimes if people use the same basic language understanding and knew what the other was talking about, yeah. would we have be more different- agreement yeah. on these issues? Of course. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a really good panel. Like you said before the break, it's hard to put people in a box mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. We've been through the Obama years, the Trump years, the pandemic lockdown. People have had time to really cogitate and think about these things. And that's why I think what really will determine what happens in November is which party can drive their message in the way they want to drive it. So mm-hmm. that when voters go into that booth, they're thinking about what the party wanted them to think right. as opposed to just being left with their own impressions. On the one hand, I think President Trump is a little bit of an anchor on Republicans. I don't think there's going to be a shellacking like 2010 that Obama took. Right. I don't know if uh, Democrats will hold on to Congress. And I think Democrats are having a problem accentuating the positive. They're playing a lot of good defense, but I don't know that they always well, can tout the record. I'll give well. you a preview. I'll give you a preview. Democrats are going to get shellacked. Based on the, the current trends, right? I, I was. What does that look like? What do you like? mean by that? I, I think they're going to lose the House by 20 plus seats, right? Wow. 20 to 30 seats. Okay. And I think you, in the current situation, I'm just, you know, for a while sure. there, it was kind of, you know, ebb and flow. I think 20 to 30 seats in the, in the House safe. And I think Republicans will win the Senate. It'll be 51. I think you're going to see, you know, we'll have a runoff again in, in Georgia probably. And I think, uh, I think Herschel Walker will come out on top there. And, and I think Republicans control the Senate. And David, your, to your point, it's about voter enthusiasm. It's not about the messaging. Who's going to show up on Election Day, right? And earlier in, uh, on the network, I saw Bernie Sanders on saying, I'm going to go out and try to get people fired up because the Democratic base just isn't excited. That's you not see, true, you, though. Uh, Maria, in, I'm in just saying. poll after poll, you see that that's uh, not okay, true. Okay, well, and, and, and maybe, let, I'm let mistake, me, maybe Bernie just, Sanders is wrong. L- let me just say this. 
Bernie Sanders has been wrong before, but I like that he's going out there and making sure that, that people understand how important this election is. I think you're wrong. I think that Democrats have a very good chance of keeping the Senate. I don't think... Where do you think that, on the House? Where are they going to go? If we lose the House, I think it'll be 10 to 15. Now, there's a lot of time still from now to Election Day. Anything can happen. But right now, here's what we're seeing. All of these national polls, I don't think that they are measuring the phenomenal, incredible mobilization and energy that you see everywhere, most everywhere, on this issue of abortion. Early voting. And, already, I mean, early voting. Has, so, people have turned so let's talk about early, early voting. In Georgia, early voting, the there's, whole point as to, yes, to there's the record gap, numbers. To bridge the gap to your conversation, part of early voting for strategists, I understand, is to gauge the enthusiasm gap. Correct. And what else has to happen. But on this point... But who votes thing, early? Well, I, well, I want to address it. People who want to have their vote counted. But the thing is... Historically, I think it's been Democrats. My point is, I wonder... With the ticket splitting and the idea that there's no more pigeonholing and the idea of how you think about how to project in the trajectory, does that factor into either of your points here? And the idea of if there's not going to be the straight party tickets any longer, how do you how do you anticipate so, so, so success? I think, yeah, I, I think, oh, yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I actually think that the more more Republicans are going to be are going to do ticket splitting than Democrats. It doesn't mean that Democrats won't. But mm-hmm. I think, in, in fact, if we take your panel, there were two Republicans saying they weren't going to vote for the Republican candidate. They were I don't the know. particularly extreme. Exact, exactly. Exactly. And just bring themselves. And, and frankly, across the board, what you see in terms of the extremism, it mostly exists on the Republican side. So I think in terms of trying to gauge what's going to happen, what Democrats are looking at is not just these polls, but they're looking at enthusiasm on the ground. And I've talked to many campaigns, both congressional campaigns as well as Senate campaigns, and they are saying that their enthusiasm is off the charts. And in terms of Why early vote, Georgia I, I, has I, I'm record numbers. Because I'm, I'm out seeing it in Pennsylvania, Florida, other places. I am but too. Listen, I, I think jo- okay, ticket splitting, I do believe that's going to occur. I believe Josh Shapiro is going to win as governor in Pennsylvania and that Mehmet Oz will be the senator. I believe in, in Arizona, Carrie Lake will be governor. And Mark Keller remains senator, right? So I believe there's going to be these races that you're going to look at and say, oh, that's very curious. I'd never picked that in a million years, right? Mm-hmm. In certain instances, because candidates do matter. And, you know, Mark Kelly's is, is, is a lot of Arizonans think he's a pretty moderate guy. He's a serious mm-hmm. person. Blake Masters hasn't really made the case, right? Carrie Lake, on the other hand, you would say by all accounts, it's, it's pretty far out there. But I think she still wins. So, you know, these candidates matter. Brian Kemp is going to win by a big margin in Georgia. And maybe he's got enough to carry Herschel across the finish line. So I do think you'll see ticket splitting in certain places. Candidates do matter. And, you know, you heard heard the young woman from college say, listen, I wish I could vote for Republican, but I can't. Right. If only we had a magic eight ball to shake and figure out. It's called Election Day. It's called Election (laughs) Day. We don't have to wait that long. Everyone stick around. We're going to talk more about this. It's really, frankly, an obvious thing to say that. No one likes making mistakes. And maybe David, who just got a lot of predictions, I wonder if he has a mistake ahead of him. I don't know. I don't know. But the question is, is the pursuit of perfectionism impacting our mental health? There actually might be an alternative. It's called, get this, excellencism. What? We'll explain that. <laughs> we will explain that. Here's a question for you. Do you consider yourself a perfectionist? Well, if so, Allison, you may have to and may want to lower your standards because according to a new piece in the Washington Post, the persistent push to be flawless can lead to negative effects on your mental health, including low self-worth, anxiety, depression, and even suicidality. To counter this pursuit of perfection, some psychologists are now saying, here's a healthy alternative. 
It's called excellencism. Back mm. again with Maria Cardona, David wow. Urban, <laughs> and David Swerdlick. It and might need a new word. No. <laughs> yeah. well, listen, I was wrong. Allison, Allison, you could correct me. Go ahead, Allison. Tell oh, me I was I'm wrong. I'm so glad that I'm you're giving perfect. me this opportunity. <laughs> yes, you're right. You have not been perfect even on this show thus yes. far, David. Yeah. 66% of Republicans do not believe that Biden is the legitimate president. That's I, not a small I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. Well, I was wrong. You're embracing, you are embracing See, that, I'm, I'm, work, I'm working for excellence. That's right. Excellence. Yeah. You're, you're uh, exactly. already better, isn't uh, it? Yeah. Guys, guys. I feel better about myself Let me tell you now. something. I have never been burdened by perfectionism <laughs> at all. I am not burdened by or excellenceism. Mm-hmm. I practice my own credo. It's yeah. called good enough-ism. <laughs> and honestly, it works like a charm. You just have to be good enough. Show up and be good enough. I was telling Laura, I sometimes am invited to speak to women's groups mm-hmm. about how to balance, you know, motherhood and work life. And women talk about this thing called mommy guilt. They feel so yeah. bad if they didn't do something perfect for their kids. I'm like, time out. I'm like, are you giving them three square meals a day? Yeah. Or do they have a roof over their head? Do you love them? You're good. Yeah. It's good enough. Yeah. I really believe I agree. that. Yeah. I didn't say anything in here about social media, right? Because I think that drives a lot of this, right? A lot of insecurity in people and teens. Instagram, yeah. Pinterest. Yeah, right? So people yeah. see Especially photos. for young people. Well, they see the it. lives they don't have, right? You see fabulous cars and fabulous boats and I'm taking a jet here. I've got this great vacation. My kids are and perfect. And it's all a mirage anyway. Right? It's fake. I, I don't subscribe to the good enough philosophy. No? I, I don't. I happen, I, I you, do, you describe the excellence. I, I, I do tell. like excellenceism. I didn't make up the word. But I, I do think also, though, there is a certain amount of luxury in being able to be less than perfect. Yeah. Not everyone yeah. gets. And I think that you know, there, the standards can be very high. Um, and I, but I also, I'll say that I think my competition is me, is me yesterday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, but I do give myself yeah. more grace as a mom, especially since the pandemic, because it was 24 yeah. seven, like on me attached yeah, for sure. But I do think that there's something to having standards for yourself to pursue excellence. Yeah. I agree with that, but I also only compete with myself. Yeah. And I think if you only compete with yourself, you're just in a better position because I, then I'm, why are we striving? Yeah. For no, no, I completely agree with you except for, and I, when I, do a lot of speeches to young Latinas, for example, I do tell them to be better than the person that they are competing against. And that's not just themselves, mm-hmm. because they are competing against white men, sorry, sorry, <laughs> uh, and they have to be better, not just better than them a little bit better, they have to be twice as good. And is that too much stress for their mental health? It, mi- it might be, it but, but it, it depends. Exactly. It depends on the person. It depends mm-hmm. how driven they are. That's how I grew up. That's, you know, how I got through school. That's how I got through and, you know, did my political career and have the privilege of being here at this table with you all, because I always feel like I have to be incredibly prepared. But to your point about being a mom, when I had children, I did say to myself, okay, I can't do everything and be everything at the same Not time. I had a wonderful husband, have a wonderful husband. He helped me, you know, and I couldn't have done it without him. But I also said to myself, I'm going to sleep when they sleep. I don't care if the house is messy. Yes. Because oh, I can't be good if they're sick. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to be a better version of yourself. Right? Everybody wants to improve. However, I, I do believe that you're bombarded by the media nonstop, 24-7, with messages that say you're not good enough. You're not thin enough. Your skin's not great enough. Your hair's not shiny enough. Why are you looking right Right. at me, David? No, no, listen. I'm looking at me. I'm I'm looking at the monitor. My hair's not shiny enough. My hair's not shiny enough. But you're bombarded nonstop, whether it's print, 
whether it's on social media. And I think that leads to a lot of insecurities in people. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I, I like the way you put that. You're competing against yourself yesterday. I think this concept of excellenceism makes sense, but I also think it's a little bit of a rebrand, right? You said good enoughism yeah. or okayism. Uh, there's don't let the don't, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right. Quiet quitting is today's version yeah. of yeah. you know phoning it in, whatever. Right. Fine. And, and by the way, we we actually do practice this with our kids. How many times have we said to our kids, "Just do your best." You're not telling yeah. them. Well, there are. I guess parents who say, you got to be yeah. the best or else. Wait, I, just you, I just thought you told those kids to be best. Wait, well, where are you going I now? told them. I told them to be oh, best. Oh, okay. No, 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 Try to do your best because really that's all you can ask from people. I mean, as a prosecutor, I remember like it was always a factor of the government and prosecutors in particular were expected to be perfect. There's never the time nor the resources to be. And you find that in so many, it made it, I'm here, right? I mean, the idea of thinking about it. At the same token, though, I do see the benefits in terms of mental health. It's all the individual person. If you feel as though you are striving for somebody else's definition of perfect, you're in a world of trouble. Yeah, well, yeah. Zero defects in the workplace, your life is just not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. And we learned that in the pandemic, if, right. if nothing else. Yeah. Yes. All right. So what do you think about all of this? Are you a perfectionist? Has the drive for perfection ever impacted your life? Let us know what you think. That and anything else you want to say to us about what we're talking about For tonight, <laughs> tweet us at the... Oh, no, I'm not the Allison Camerata. <laughs> I'm Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates. You are the Allison Camerata, yes. yes, I'll go by that soon. <laughs> Vermont's Republican governor, Phil Scott, was asked at a debate last night what he does to lower his carbon footprint. As you'll hear, he's really embracing this. Please name one individual action you have taken to lower your own carbon footprint, Governor Scott. Well, whether it's uh, the electrical vehicle for uh, state security uh, that drives me around, uh, but also uh, I'm a... (laughs) I live that. I recycle. I have solar panel. I, I do mm-hmm. everything we can. We keep our okay. heat down to 58. I mean, it's we do everything. 58? 58 that degrees. is going above and beyond the call of what? environmental consciousness. Look, Allison, in my house, it is a constant battle. My husband and I, I hit like, I think 74 degrees is right. He's like, you. 74 degrees. He's you. like, woman, it is 67 and go get a sweater. And I'm like, it. Oh, no. It's 74 degrees. Right. I mean, 67 is chilly. 58. Can, 58. He, can he see his breath indoors? And I'm from Minnesota, mind you. That's not... My husband will turn off wow. when I'm brushing my teeth, turn off the water. And I'm like, I wasn't, wasn't <laughs> done. <laughs> that's, that's a good move. But that's the age-old marital debate of yeah. the husband, I think, always wants the room colder. The wife always wants it warmer. I like a good 72, but I'm willing to settle for 71. But can you imagine mm, living no. at 58 degrees? I mean, it lives as truth. And I'll be real with you, the, the hot flashes are real. So maybe it would help me <laughs> at night to sleep at 58. But I'd be so cold. But you know what? The solar panels he mentioned, electric yep. cars. The point I think he's making is every little thing will help. Yeah. And it's hard when you're a parent to look at your kids and not start to take actions to do something that will impact their lives. Oh, no, he's leaning in. He is. He's leaning in. And I think that his policies have reflected that as well. I know that he didn't vote for some... A uh, big environmental thing recently, but that's because he said that they weren't giving him, uh, mm. the, the uh, state legislature hadn't given him the cost of it. But I think that he's walking the walk, particularly if he's making his family live with 58 degrees. 
we couldn't be married. Yeah. Oh, thank no, you. That's right. But he didn't ask. Well, either, so that's fine. So I'm anyway, also polls suggesting that Republicans are actually gaining momentum ahead of the midterms. And look, if the GOP does take over Congress, I wonder if you thought about what kind of seismic changes we could actually see. And really, Allison, if America is ready for any of those changes. Well, there's a new science tonight that Americans are energized about the midterms. You know, almost 4 million Americans have actually already voted. And that happens That's to energized. be how far it is with 2018. Mm. That was the highest turnout for a midterm election in decades, according to Catalyst data. So with less than three weeks until votes are counted, our colleagues crunching the poll numbers say that Republicans are gaining momentum. If the GOP takes back Congress, the country could look and feel very different in a few mm. months. Here to discuss... We have Mark Sanford, former Republican governor of South Carolina, John Lawrence, former chief of staff for Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and Robert Draper, author of the new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being here. Great to have you all in studio. Robert, you talk about this in your book. Can you paint a picture for us? What will it look like? What will happen for the next two years in this country if the Republicans win back Congress? Well, the first thing that will happen, as Marjorie Taylor Greene told me, is there's going to be a lot of investigation. So you can expect uh, the GOP to take a kind of a punitive form, you know, that there will be, uh, uh, it will be a party of payback. They will be stripping people of their committee assignments the way Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar were. Uh, they will almost certainly be articles of impeachment advanced. Uh, against to me, Yeah, yeah. Against yeah, Biden. Yeah, against Biden and perhaps against some of his cabinet members. I think what will be more interesting is to see how uh, the Republicans deal with issues like the debt ceiling and whether they will try to use social wedge issues attached to the debt ceiling to extract certain concessions from the president. Uh, McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, did that, of course, when he was uh, majority whip in 2011. And it seems very likely we'll see some version of that again. I mean, John, you know, it's almost like a you both have new books out. Thank you very much. You have a book called Arc of Power, where you talk about the speakership of Nancy Pelosi. You've seen this ebb and flow in the way that government operates. Sometimes the Democrats and sometimes the Republicans are in the majority. I do wonder, in terms of, as he talks about this payback mentality, I mean, retaliatory actions can't be a platform, can it? No. I mean, ultimately, you're going to be judged on whether or not you're able to advance your own legislative agenda. The Republicans have put out something called the Commitment to America. It's a little thin. And what's interesting about it is, unlike the 6 for 06 that Pelosi did in in 2006, uh, those issues were picked because when they came up on the floor, they'd be bipartisan. The issues in Commitment to America are not designed to be heavily focused on on, uh, oversight and investigation. But now they're beginning, McCarthy's talking about maybe cuts in Social Security and cuts in Medicare as part of the condition for passing a debt ceiling. That kind of stuff may be pushed by this extreme group that he could find himself the speaker leading. Um, but it's not clear to me that there's a public support for that. Governor, who wins, though, in this? I mean, if that, if that is the, if it's the party of payback, um, that's not a platform that, or is it, a winning message? I mean, do you think there's an appetite among American voters today to say, look, it's our time to be back in the majority if you're a Republican, we're going to stick it to them? Uh, Let's separate policy from politics for one second. Not that you can in Washington, D.C. But what (laughs) I would say is 
sadly, as a fiscal conservative, there's going to be little change in Washington on the things that matter to me in terms of spending. I mean, if you look at, again, the sort of miniature contract with America, it's very thin, to your point, John, on, on details, on anything that would actually limit government. So it's more here and a little bit more there, different constituencies perhaps. But there's not, you know, you know, for instance, earmarks came back in this Congress. They're not disappearing in the next one. There's no push on that. You don't see that in the contract. There's no real push with regard to streamlining government that was talked about in the contract with America that I was a part of back in 1994. So I think that, you know, the Washington machine is going to continue to run on. We can talk about big change. I think where you will see change, to, to, to Robert's point, is with some of the investigations. I think there will be payback. But I think ultimately even that will be driven in a political sense by who's at the top of the ticket. If Trump is still around and Biden's still around, investigations du jour. If they're not, I think you may see much less in the way of investigations because it's not to their political advantage to do so. In your really new book, oh, sorry, in your new book, you talk about McCarthy. That might be a change, of course, if Republicans are the ones who are in the majority. I don't know if there's a foregone conclusion that Kevin McCarthy is the leader uh, or speaker of the House, but you have a, a quote in the book and talking about this idea that he made this elaborate show of establishing policy-focused task forces mm-hmm. as an on-ramp to being the likely governing party in Congress after the elections. Um, but the idea of the party's energy was instead focused on bloodlust. And, if, and who would be the next speaker, Kevin McCarthy? Talk to me about that. Well, for one thing, yes, you, you were referencing, Laura, uh, these, um, uh, these policy groups that were set up by McCarthy, but a lot of people didn't even attend them. Some of, the, some of them uh, never even actually uh, uh, convened. So it was, it was for show. It was for a way of suggesting that we're seriously focused on policy. But to Mark's point, for example, that's uh, um, the... Uh, you know, the MAGA wing of the Republican Party is really the center of gravity right now. And they are not fixated on controlling deficit spending, for example. They are not fixated on the national debt. Instead, they are fixated on things like sealing off the border, critical race theory, and a very, uh, you know, various and sundry other social wedge issues. McCarthy is very attuned to that. And while I think that, that uh, you know, he certainly has established members of the Republican Party who would like to see uh, our fiscal house in order, as they say, um, uh, uh, taken care of, uh, he he is going to be dealing night and day uh, with the MAGA wing of the party that's far more focused on these things. And just one more thing from your book. Uh, It sounds like Marjorie Taylor Greene will also have more of a starring role. Here's something from your book. You say, um, she said, you, I guess, posed this question to her. And she says to you, I think that to be the best speaker of the House and to please the base, he's going to give me a lot more power and a lot of leeway, right. she predicted. It sounds like bravado, but I think there's truth to it, uh, not because uh, Kevin McCarthy wants to do her any favors, but because, once again, he recognizes that um, the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party is the loudest voice in the room, and she is the proximate you know, uh, a disciple or, or, or person uh, who represents Trumpism. So if, if McCarthy does not do that, um, Green predicts, I think not without cause, that there's going to be hell to pay for him. You were, you were chief of staff to Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, um, in your time in, on Capitol Hill. And I just wonder, do you think it's a foregone conclusion that if Republicans are to reclaim the majority in the House, is Kevin McCarthy the top of the list? I think, as with all leadership elections, it's going to depend on who's elected. You know, we don't know what the composition of that caucus is going to be, and we don't know what the, what the demands are going to be made by the Marjorie Taylor Greens and others of this new speaker. I... I in my book, Arc of Power, I talk about running into John Boehner uh, a couple of weeks after the election in, uh, in 2010 when he, he took over as, as speaker. And I congratulated him. And he said to me, John, 
in uh, six months, I'll be more popular in your caucus than I am in my own. <laughs> and the, the point being, he knew that he was going to become speaker because he had this huge infusion of Tea Party members who were, ha, saw him as much of a problem as they saw Nancy Pelosi. I think those people look like James Madison compared to a lot of the folks who are going to show up here uh, in, in the next few months. And those are the people that a Speaker McCarthy would have to go to to pass a continuing resolution to keep the government open, to pass a debt ceiling to keep the government from reneging on its debts. And, you know, when those votes came up in 2011, 2012, the way they passed was with Democratic votes. They never got more than 179 Republicans. Well, one person who seems to have confidence that this will be sorted out is Vice President, former Vice President Mike Pence. He spoke at Georgetown University tonight, and he was asked if he would vote for Donald Trump. So let's listen to that. Mr. Pence, if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee for president in 2024, will you vote for him? Well, there might be somebody else I'd prefer more. You know, what I can tell you is I'm, I have every confidence that the Republican Party is going to sort out leadership. All my focus has been on the midterm elections, and it'll stay that way for the next 20 days. But after that, we'll be thinking about the future ours and the nation's, and uh, I'll keep you posted, okay? <laughs> I didn't hear yes or no. Did you, Governor? Mm. I heard no. Okay. <laughs> I saw a Cheshire yeah, yeah, grin yeah. Uh, that yeah. it was uh, yeah, enigmatic. Yeah, yeah. What did you hear there? Of the art of evasion. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. yet again, we see that, that uh, uh, you cannot run against Trump. You know, it's clear that, that uh, Pence doesn't want Trump, but he really can't say so. To say so is to defy the MAGA base and, and to invite the wrath of Trump. Oh, self-immolation. Totally. To say no. So he had been, so he had, I just thought his smile there, his sort of frozen <laughs> smirk of, hmm, wow, do but, I but, answer but, but it's remarkable to a guy who stood adoringly looking up mm-hmm. at President Trump at press conference after press conference after press conference to be where he is now. Yeah. Mm. Uh, That's true. I mean, it, but that was before the gallows. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Things have changed. All right, gentlemen, thank you all. Up next, The Washington Post doing a major analysis of TikTok videos that are focusing on the issue of abortion. The analysis is interesting, mm-hmm. what they found, and why one of the conclusions is that the social media platform is almost perfectly designed to further divide Americans on this issue. Well, the social media platform TikTok is playing a very big role when it comes to hot button issues like abortion. That according to new analysis from The Washington Post. Viewing more than a thousand viral TikToks using the hashtag abortion, the post came away with two gigantic conclusions. One, abortion rights posts get more views than anti-abortion posts. And two, TikTok is almost perfectly designed to maybe further divide us politically. For more, I want to bring in one of the reporters behind this story, Washington Post data columnist David Byler. David, thank you for being here. When I saw that story, first of all, I had to say to myself, all right, Laura, you, you're young enough to know TikTok still. I had to comfort myself in that. The other part of it was, God, what did it actually stand for, knowing how much we've got these media silos, how much we have people who are turning to TikTok for information and for advocacy. Tell me what you found in the study. Right. So we scraped the thousand sort of most viral, most engaged with TikTok videos we could find that were about abortion. And we found a couple of things. We found that for years, 
these TikTok users who have an audience that's primarily Gen Zs, primarily, primarily millennials, they've been following the ups and downs of this debate. And you see a spike in viral videos whenever a major abortion restriction is passed or when Roe fell at the Supreme Court. So you see that dynamic, but you also see a situation where the sides sort of have different tactics that balkanize. You have on the right sort of pro-life creators who uh, sort of preach to the choir. And on the left, you have creators who will grab clips from the sort of creators on the right and then just dunk on them and debate and so on and so forth. So you have these sort of silo dynamics exactly like what you're talking about. I want to play for the audience a little bit of what we're talking about. Let's play. There's, there's one where there's a, somebody who's opposing abortion rights that I'm going to play the flip side, a proponent of them, beginning with the po- opposition. Here it is. There is no such thing as my body, my choice when it comes to being pregnant. It is no longer just your body. It's three parties. It's your body, the child's body with its own DNA, and the father. In New York City, asking people their thoughts on abortion. Do you know who you're interviewing? Sorry, no. Please do. I'm Alexander Sanger. I'm the former president of Planned Parenthood of New York. My my grandmother is Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood. You cannot make abortion go away by criminalizing it. Mm -hmm. All you do is you make it unsafe. I mean, first of all, on the latter one, I mean, talk about a man on the street, the happenstance, perhaps, of getting that particular person. But the way that these videos are becoming increasingly viral, some actually wrap around images of very popular celebrities like Kim Kardashian and the like, even though it's not about what she's saying, but just using the image to get people in. I I wonder... um, when did you first notice that this hashtag was gaining all this traction on TikTok in general? Yeah, well, we started sort of thinking about this story uh, before the Dobbs decision, before Roe v. Wade was overturned, just over the summer as these sort of laws were uh, being passed in various red states that were sort of pushing the boundaries on abortion rights. Uh, and we sort of found that there were these spikes, there were these moments of virality that were just different than what you saw on other media. And it's different because, you know, TikTok is a ground up media. Anyone with a phone can make a video. Um, you can sort of have a man on the street interview. You can have a personal testimonial. You can have sort of a linear point by point argument. It's an everything goes medium. So. Um, yeah, we started noticing just when the events turned that way and we started scraping these videos. Everything goes, including misinformation, I presume, at times. Yeah, just the volume of content on that platform is so high. I, I can't think of a way that it would be humanly possible to regulate every single thing. So when we were going through some of those top posts, we saw things that, you know, a medical doctor might say, oh, well, that's not quite right in terms of the facts about abortion or, oh, well, this, you know, image and the way that it's done misconstrues this, that or the other. Um, And yeah, so misinformation can thrive on these platforms because I don't know how anyone could regulate the whole thing. David Byler, thank you so much. Thanks. Well, I don't like this one bit.
I don't like it one bit. Which part, the tick or the talk? <laughs> <laughs> All I of mean, it. I mean, I like TikTok for dancing with my kids. I like that mm. part. But I don't like that people are going there for their as their source of information. Mm. As you just brought up, there's misinformation. It's not a reliable source of information. And the fact that this is where people are going to get information on something as important as abortion. Let's bring back yeah. our panel. Mark Sanford is back with us. Also, we want to bring in CNN political commentator Karen Finney. She's a board member of Ultraviolet, a group that promotes feminism culture and political change. Robert Draper is also back with us. Robert, what's happening is these influencers on social media are now as influential as reliable journalistic sources. No, that's right. And a couple of things at play here. I mean, one of them is that I think um, TikTok represents the apotheosis of social media, which is really not intended to persuade. It's intended to intensify. It's intended to harden pre-existing, you know, notions. And uh, but to rely on TikTok for as an information source uh, invites the possibility, as we've seen with some of these, where um, anti-abortion TikToks will say that the morning-after pill is tantamount to baby killing. Uh, this is nuts. I, I think that that uh, the story does engage in a little bit of what sounded to me like both sidesism by saying yes, but then, you know, the pro-abortion or abortion rights people uh, use profanity and stuff to uh, to make this a more emotional issue. Well, it is an emotional issue. I mean, this is about women's bodies. And, and, and for those people who believe that life uh, begins at conception, it's certainly emotional for them. So I don't think that's inappropriate. I do think using it as an information source is a bit dubious. Yeah, it seems to me it's less, like you said, about persuasion and more about emotion and getting it out. I think particularly yeah. what we saw after the overturning of Roe v. Wade was just an outpouring of shock and grief that, I mean, think about this, ladies. They have more rights than we do in this moment in the United States of America. I mean, the shock of that is a lot of what I felt like I saw on TikTok. And it's about more than abortion. It's about freedom. And I think the idea for especially a lot of young people that they don't have that right anymore. It's, it's an outlet for that emotion. I do wish, though, I'll tell you one of the things, I'm also on the board of NARAL Pro-Choice America, and one of the things we've found is sharing stories. I think we've all seen this, the horrible stories um, since the fall of Roe and the dilemmas that women have found themselves in. If there was more of that and there was less of the siloism mm. where people could actually learn by just listening to what's happening to women and maybe that would be more persuasive than whether someone's yelling at you or dancing out their feelings, <laughs> right? I think that would be a little bit more effective. I, I hear you, but I, I think that the problem with this are the metrics of the way that TikTok itself is designed. The algorithm? Right, yeah. which is to say, I'm going to give you more of what you right. believe, yes. and I'm going to give you more of what you believe. And if that is the construct, you're never getting to that That's point right. where you can have the debate. That no. I and, Governor, do you, you think people are still persuadable on abortion? Are there people out there who are still on the fence? I can't find it. I've never found it. In my 25 years in politics, people were on one side or the other. People lock in fairly early. There can be a life-altering experience wherein people say, wait a minute, I had it wrong. I see it differently now. But that doesn't happen very Well, the lock-in early part's really fascinating yeah. because of who perhaps the demographic is that most relies on TikTok, mm -hmm. right? right? A lot of people, are, you're skewing younger. You're talking about maybe first-time voters so that they're okay. looking at these resources. And so maybe that is the, the capturable population of people. And that's maybe why it's such a successful medium and also maybe a dangerously divisive aspect of how we talk about these issues. Right, though not for nothing did uh, did the story conclude that uh, overwhelmingly uh, the 
um, uh, the most viral videos were ones on the uh, abortion rights side because that tends to play to a demographic that, that plays to TikTok. Mm-hmm. But, but by the way, Mark is exactly right that, that uh, the algorithms are set up uh, to, um, to, uh, to feed to you what it is you want to eat. And that is really dangerous. We, you know, having lived through the 2016 election, <laughs> having the scars to prove it. I mean, we learned that with Facebook, right, that people found themselves in silos where you were just getting fed more of that red meat and, and really hardening that partisanship mm-hmm. and that we have fewer places where there is, well, let me, let me watch this video and learn something and maybe hear a different perspective. I think that's the danger. And because it's not an American company, we're not going to be able to see the kind of platform accountability measures that we're at least now talking about with Facebook, with Instagram, with some of these others where we're also talking about danger to, to teenagers, right? I agree. And, and, TikTok is shady. I mean, you know, I don't, <laughs> but I don't mean shady in the sort of vernacular way. I mean, we don't have a lot of transparency no, into right. it. That's and right. that is cause for concern. Sure. I'm surprised people don't talk about this more often. Who knows what TikTok is really doing to all of our brains, actually? Well, that's, that's part of the issue, though. I mean, and you talk about, because a lot of discussion around social media and accountability and responsibility often then comes down to, well, who's, who's the onus on? Whose job is it to tell you or dictate, look, you don't get to be fed what you want to eat. Or, listen, I want you to hear the opposing position that's more impactful, more important. Maybe it's an instance of, look, that's what I want to see. I mean, my Netflix algorithm is going to tell me what I want to play or what yeah. I want to see. Sure. Or, you know, HBO Plus or anything else as well. Essentially trying to tell me that's what I want. That's Maybe that's the that's beauty entertainment. Of it. That's right. why I'm having such a hard time with this and so conflicted. That's entertainment. Cool. Right. Send me whatever shows, rom-coms you think I'll like. But for something, as important, as, for something <laughs> as important as this that is dividing the country so much, I'm not comfortable with uh, it just being confirmation bias. But isn't it subjective what you think is important enough to vote on? That's democracy. Well, that's right. And also, it's look, newsflash, this is how a lot of Gen Zers get all of their information right. by TikTok, and not just on the subject of abortion. I mean, it's, it, and the sheer profusion, as uh, as we were just hearing, of, of all these, there's so many that makes it a wild west, makes it utterly ungovernable. But, but I go to your point. Uh, Alan Bloom wrote a book a long time ago called The Closing of yes. the American Mind. Mm-hmm. And it talked about basically the dumbing down of some of what we were learning which made it look, Aris- I mean, uh, I mean, like Aristotle. It, it was a very different world right. back then, <laughs> and and this seems to me the opposite. I mean, the the the, the full end to that dumbing down of the American mind, when you're getting your information in 30-second sound bites and it's biased toward what you want to hear, I think it's a very worrisome spot. Mm. Well, there's a lot of worry going on in the world right now, but I want to know how you are feeling about TikTok having such an impact on the hot-button issue of abortion rights. Let us know what you're thinking. That and anything else you want to say to Allison and me? We're ready reason. for it. We're ready for <laughs> it. In reason. And Allison wants to know the list of rom-com movies to watch. Recently. Yes. Give her all those. I would like that at for Allison, this weekend. At Allison, Camerata, mm-hmm. and at the Lara Coates. So next year, Floridians are going to be picking up chips and soda or candy at one convenience store chain, and they'll be able to add a little something else to their cart, this time licensed medical weed. Circle K announcing it's teaming up with a cannabis company to sell marijuana at 10 locations in the state starting next year in 2023. The new dispensers will be right next to the existing locations. It's another sign of really just how far 
marijuana legalization has really come. Back with us now, Mark Sanford and Karen Finney, and CNN political commentator Scott Jennings, who is promised to be the old fuddy duddy in this conversation <laughs> today. His words. In every, in every conversation. Every day. Let's be honest. <laughs> well, how do you feel about this? I mean, it, it is very mainstream now, then. Uh, yeah, I guess it depends on what state you're in. Um, but, uh, yeah, it does feel like it's becoming more mainstream, and I think we're going to deeply regret it as a country going down this road. I mean, you know, I, I spend a lot of time trying to tell my kids to make good decisions and have good judgment, and now we're going to stick this stuff next to the Slurpee machine at the Circle K. And I, 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 think, I think in 20 years we're going to ask ourselves, what, what were we doing? What were we thinking? Well, when I first read it, I thought it meant recreational marijuana. And I was like, oh, that's not a, good, a, a pot drive through That's not a good <laughs> idea. But I think medical marijuana is in a different category. Um, I don't think that, I mean, obviously that's not for recreational use. That's for pain management. So I put that in a different category. But I'm with you, Scott. Actually, I'm with you. I, you and me? You and I agree together? on this together. And I, <laughs> I, I rating will commence. I, I also, and I'm, I'm willing to be persuaded, but I don't understand the pot renaissance that is happening in this country right now. I didn't like it the first time around, back when it was illegal. I don't, I don't understand the sort of I mean, walking massive around, like, wave. Right yes, now you get a contact high. I mean, it's like fifty urine and fifty percent weed smell. I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, I, I mean, who wants to? I, I mean, honestly, what's that feel like? Speaking of percentage points, though. Speaking of percentage points, look at this Gallup poll. I want you to respond, Karen, yeah. please. But the Gallup poll, this is November of just last year. Sixty-eight percent of people think that marijuana should be legal. And if you look at the map of where it is legal, I mean, medical marijuana. It's mm-hmm. talking about eighteen states mm-hmm. and, and overall. Karen, what do you think? Look, I think a couple of things. Obviously, once you're at the Circle K next to the Slurpee machine, come on, it's mainstream. I mean, you can buy CBD products in the grocery store now, right? So it's increasingly becoming more part of our daily life. We have a lot of veterans who use medical marijuana. I mean, it's becoming more ubiquitous in our society. But what I would say is, I think what's going to be interesting in Florida, actually, and some of these other states, is the pressure to follow suit with what President Biden did at the federal level and rethink, because I think people are going to be rethinking do we really want to be, especially given we know the statistics, African-Americans, three times more, you know, harsher sentencing than white Americans who are who have are just holding marijuana or maybe selling. Is that really who we are as a country, given what that has meant with our criminal justice system? And so I think it's putting it by the circle, okay, I think certainly pushes that conversation more to the fore about what are we really doing? How are we really thinking about whether it is recreational or medicinal? Now, it's also interesting in Florida that you've got, you know, Governor DeSantis is opposed to recreational. He doesn't like the smell. He's with you. Yeah. Um, I would say walking around New York, you could also walk through a cloud of cigarette smoke and cigar smoke, which I hate, but that's okay. Um, But his opponent is for legalizing marijuana. It's interesting to see if that plays any issue at all in the election. Well, Governor, if this had been in your state, how would it have played in South Carolina? Well, probably South Carolina is not the best state to ask if you talk about legalization. Uh, we'll be one of the laggard states. But I think in political terms, the dam already broke on this issue. If you look at that chart that you just threw up, basically we're at the halfway mark. We're well past that if you look at referendums and whatnot in, in, in other states. We're quickly moving to the 40-state mark. And so I, I think the dam has broken. I, I remember back, this is maybe 20 years ago, there was an article, front page, uh, in National Review, written by uh, Buckley, 
saying the war is lost. And we've been fighting that fight for 20 years, going to your point in the criminal justice system and a variety of other things that come with the war. It hadn't worked. And so this idea... Meaning the war on drugs. The war on drugs. The idea of trying something different. And you need to think about context here. We're talking about 10 stores out of 600 stores that Circle K has. And we're only talking about medical. I think it's a worthy experiment, not the end of the world. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of, again, the medical marijuana. And I'm even okay with legalizing marijuana. But, I mean, because it's what... I'm okay with legalizing it because alcohol... It's also dangerous. Yes. And we live with it, and we've learned how to live with it, and you've learned how to, I guess, teach your kids how to manage it. Your kids are probably a little too little, right? I hope so. So I'm okay with that. I just think it's interesting how many people are getting high again. Like how many adults are doing gummies and how many adults are part of this, you know, pot renaissance. Like they're really But you say like, a, like, it, like it ever really went away. Yeah, I think it did. I think it did. I don't well, know that it went away. I think it was more what is, because if it's legalized, yeah. what is more socially acceptable I guess you're right, to do. Yes, but you've also right. got it's part of the conversation more, more now. You can choose your own flavor. You can choose your own adventure, right? Because these days, I mean, marijuana is like, do you want to be hungry? Do you not want to be hungry? Do you want to be awake? Do you want to be sleepy? Right? Like you can, there's so many different strains. You can, like I say, choose your own adventure. Decide how you want to feel. That's probably part of the renaissance that you're seeing. <laughs> on the medicinal piece, whenever I'm having a medical emergency, the first thing I think of is running out to the Circle K. Yeah. I, mean, that's <laughs> I mean, could go to the emergency room, could call my doctor, or I could go to the Circle K, grab a rotisserie hot dog, and whatever else they're selling. I mean, to, come on. This, it's, this, not, this, it's this is, not for a medical this, emergency, this is, this, Scott. This is a, it's not for a medical emergency. Well, some it's people for, might disagree. They might yeah, say it's an emergency. No. The, the point of this is not... To say, oh, it's it's the point of this is to get the foot in the door of just selling it. Yeah, I don't think that's right. That's, that's, I, I, that's I don't think that's right. I think that people actually do use it for pain management, and I do think that's different than getting high for sure. I mean, I that's think the lesson here is no one but you has ever grabbed the rotisserie hot dog. Ew, well, for sure. I mean, wow. we don't have a lot of restaurants where I'm from. <laughs> That's wow. As a general rule, maybe at, maybe at noon. But by 11 p.m., it's that same one going around oh, and yeah. around. Yeah. Not a renaissance. No, no. Not a renaissance. No, that's an old hot dog. Uh, okay, so, thank you. Thank you, guys, very much. We want to talk about this. The Miami Dolphins quarterback, Tua Tungavailoa, speaking out for the first time since suffering that mm. concussion and revealing some scary details about that day. So we'll tell you what he's saying. Plus, we're hearing from you on social media next. Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungavailoa speaking out for the first time since suffering a concussion. Here's what he says about the hit that sent him to the hospital. Yeah, I remember the entire night up to the point where uh, I got tackled. Uh, but, yeah, after after I got tackled, I, I don't remember uh, much from, from there. Getting carted off, I don't remember that. Um, but I do remember, uh, you know, things uh, that were going on when I was in the ambulance and then when I arrived at the hospital. Mm. Scott Jennings and Karen Finney are back with us. Also joining us is former NFL player Dante Stallworth. Dante, uh, what are your thoughts and what did you think as you watched that um, hit that he took where he got the concussion? Uh, it's tough. It's always tough. And I think it's more tough now, honestly, since I've been out. There's been a lot more research and studies that have been done on concussions and we understand a lot more about them than we did 10, 15, 20 years ago in the NFL. 
Um, but as a player, I understand his his willingness to want to get back out there. That's that's kind of the mentality uh, that that we've been uh, infused with throughout our entire career since we were children. So um, it is it is something that's devastating. I think the NFL definitely has to uh, make some amendments to the concussion policy and the protocol because he shouldn't that can't have been happen. playing. No, and but I, but I, I will note too that uh, the next couple of games actually that were played in the NFL. We had similar situations where a guy went down early in the game. It was the third play of the game for the uh, Indianapolis Colts. Mm. Um, Naheem Mines, I believe it was. And he went down in similar fashion and was stumbling, and they took him out for the rest of the game. So I think that, unfortunately, it took for for us to see what happened to Tua, an egregious uh, hit of the head uh, on the ground, and then we saw what happened afterwards. And I think the culture, is, it has to change after that. What's so to. crazy is thinking about, we've, we've known about CTE. We know about traumatic, traumatic yeah. brain injuries. We, this has been something that has been studied. There's been movies about it, very popular ones as well. When you talk about the willingness to get back in the game, I often wonder what that motivation comes from. Is it the idea of the so-called heart of a champion? Or is it I'm willing because there are consequences in my team and consequences to my career if I don't? Yeah, there's a number of all that. And I think specifically, too, we're talking particularly about Tua. That actually played into uh, him wanting to get back out there. And uh, he's had this situation where they're doubting him. They don't know if he was worth as high of the draft pick as he was. And they were wondering if he was a bust. And so he he's comes out you know, this year and has a relatively good year up to that point. And so, of course, he's going to want to get back out there to continue to prove himself. It's just the willingness. There's, you know, when, when, when an athlete uh, breaks an ankle or they pull a hamstring, the mindset immediately goes to how long is, how long am I going to be out, and what do I have to do to get back out as soon as as soon as possible. So there's a different mindset uh, in the athlete's mind, especially in football, where it's where it's a it's a rough, it's an extremely rough sport, and you have to kind of take on this tough mentality. And unfortunately, sometimes that tough mentality can hurt us, and in, in the fact that we want to get back out on the field after even after an egregious hit like a concussion. You two were having a lively discussion during the commercial <laughs> yeah. break because you're, you admitted you're conflicted a little about this. Yeah, I am because on the one hand, you know, I see this guy, highly talented guy, has been working uh, towards this his whole life, and he's an adult. And so I think, well, he should be able to make these decisions. But then I think about, you know, he's only able to make decisions about whether he should play based on the information he's being given. And I think about, and if, you, if I may ask you a question because you've been there, the, the advice and information these players get, you know, it comes from a doctor mm. who, I guess one doctor got fired over this, right, for clearing him? There was, a, yeah, there was a, and, a, neuro, a, neuro, um, a neurologist who uh, was independent that was fired. And yeah. so, you know, you're getting, in, you're getting advice from the team, and, and so it's in the team's <laughs> best interest for him to play. Right. It's in the league's best interest for him to play. But I just wonder sometimes, do most of these players have someone who don't have a conflict of interest giving them advice about what's best for them. And, and, and again, he's an adult, and I'm, I tend to lean adults should be able to do what they want to do. Yeah. But I, I wonder about the advice they're getting because all I mean, he's not a doctor. All he knows is what someone told him his risk is. And I just, right. I'm curious about that. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's, it's hard to uh, kind of you know, put the onus on a player when they've had a head injury and expect them to be able to think rationally. Mm-hmm. So we take baseline tests uh, before the season starts to determine uh, where our threshold is um, after a concussion. And then so when you, when you take that test, uh, they kind of see, you know, how far you've fallen off of, off of your normal uh, testing that you've done. And that, that a number of those uh, issues I went through and the independent contractors were brought in to specifically not be a conflict of interest through the uh, player. And, uh, you know, we saw what happened where the Miami Dolphins uh, guy was fired. So, right. and we're still waiting on, waiting on the investigation to see what actually happened and how that happened. So, 
uh, I think that it's it's good to keep the independent contractors, but at the same time, we've seen it fail. So we there needs to be more amendments, you know, to to what the NFL protocol is. This is personal to you, Karen, yeah. for a variety of reasons. Yeah, it is. I mean, as y'all know, I had brain surgery last year, so I know a bit about. And when you are confronted with the fragility of the brain and the idea that in a second, I couldn't hear out of my left ear, I couldn't eat, I couldn't swallow, I couldn't talk. And you think about, and I thought about it as like, you know, I've had a great life, I'm blessed. This is a 24-year-old young man. And the impact, you know, of one hit, one too many hits. And in that press conference, he said, they asked him about CTE and he's like, well, but on average, you got to get hit six times. And I've only been hit two times. And I mean, he was clearly doing the math in his head. And I'm thinking, no, we, I don't want to see that. And I think part of this, the onus has to be on us as fans to say, I don't want you to feel like you have to go out there and be a gladiator and hit harder and draw blood and get the scores up and play if you have a concussion or an injury, because we've seen all of that. I, why can't we just enjoy the game and say, okay, you're injured, that's okay. Like, we can do something to take that pressure off, is what I feel like. Dante, do you athletes. feel, even now, concerns, having, having freely, freely played in the league? I do. I, I think, in, you know, like I said, after, after all the research that we've seen, you know, in the last uh, 15, 20 years, and we know more, we understand more about how football specifically uh, can can lead to TBI, especially down you know down the road for players. Um, it's troubling. You see a lot of these guys having issues. Guys that when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s that I was watching and are now having these issues. They don't know. They don't remember how they how to get home after just driving to the grocery store and they've done it a hundred times. Just little things like this. Uh, it, it definitely concerns me, and um, which is why I've I've tried to be as big as an advocate for the players because I know the players, regardless if if they can see and hear, they're going to want to play in the game. So. We have to. There has to be something where we have to protect the players, and I know that um, the NFL has tried to do things, but again, we've seen it fail recently. So, in your experience, do you feel like the fan base has gotten thirstier for more violence over the course of your career in dealing with football? That's a good question. I, I will say, um, and I'm I'm guilty of this because I actually love fantasy football, but I think fantasy football has has made the players more look at players less human and more as commodities. And yeah, um, I agree with that. I yeah. Agree and, that. and so when guys get injured, the first thing that you'll see, I mean, I know Twitter's, you know, the worst place to go. But when you'll see on Twitter where they'll well, they'll have, well, they'll say something like, oh, my fantasy team's going to, you know, this guy was knocked out of the game with a head injury. And it's and, you know, the, that's the conversation that's happening. So, uh, you know, it, it is it, like I said, it's something that that has to be there has to be some kind of systemic change. And I hope the NFL I know the NFL will because they have no choice. They have to uh, make amends to this new policy. But. But also to, um, I, I will say to answer your question earlier, what you were speaking about earlier, I, I think the, the the violence of the game is is something that drives the game. So until we see these players more as humans and more and less as yes. commodities, I think it'll it, it'll continue to be that way. Unfortunately. Perfect segue yeah. to um, talk about social media. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for you all to sound off. We're going to read your tweets next and engage with you and join the conversation. Well, hot off the presses, your tweets are continuing to roll in. What's the number one issue motivating you to vote? One person says economy, economy, economy. Okay, the next person says saving our democracy. 
I want to say climate and women's bodily autonomy, but without democracy, we will have neither. Thank you, Tina, for writing in there. We were talking about that very point, right? Another person says, I am a recovering perfectionist. Ah. I'm now focused on being more resilient when things don't go perfectly. That's good. That's a good one. Um, yeah. Okay. Those are, you are recovering? I'm, I'm trying. No, I've <laughs> never no. been a perfectionist. I know that has never been in my vocabulary. Everybody... Take it down a notch. Good enoughism. Mm. Okay? That's my credo. Try it out tomorrow. Good enoughism. All right. Meanwhile, you know where to find us at Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates. Thanks for watching. Our coverage continues, everyone.